Hi, everyone. Uh, you see, Ahmed and I did it at the same time. That's how excited we are. <laughs> I have a lot to say about this book. So I'm super excited to have today's conversation with Terry Ann Adams, who is the author of Those Who Live in Cages, which is her first novel. Um, I'm just going to read the blurb at the back. Uh, just to introduce our guest today to the podcast. Tyrion Adams was raised in Eldorado Park. She completed her honors degree at the University of Pretoria with a special interest in disability representation. And Those Who Live in Cages is her first novel. Welcome to the Cheeky Natives, Tyrion. Yo, you guys don't know, ever since I knew this podcast existed, I've want, been wanting to be on this podcast, so I am so we going to chat today, okay, because I have feelings. Sticky notes. <laughs> I, I wanted to, 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 to just read one of the endorses, um, endorsement, which I think really, like, yeah, I like it. I like it. So Jamil Afkhan, who's the author of Khamer, The Makings of Avatar Slums, writes, the stories laid bare in those who live in cages have always been hidden in plain sight as experiences of those who are preferably unheard. Terry Ann Adams enters as a deeply reflective colored voice who masterfully dislodges yet another thread of false monolith we have come to know as coloredness in South Africa. Between these pages, readers will find the richness of identities, culture, cultural and linguistic that never make it beyond the binary of right to register story and a gut-wrenching Alrada Park tragedy. Adams shows us that beyond our voyeuristic fascinations with social misfits, there is much more to know about the women and the people of Alrada Park. This book masterfully weaves confrontations with religion, classism, patriarchy, homophobia, racism, and colorism into its everyday expression as both spectacular and commonplace, showing always how deeply the author has considered the weight of it all. Those who live in cages sets free so many of us who still haunt the now dissolute nation building project waiting to be acknowledged. A necessary profound imagination of our realities is what Adams has gifted us and it deserves our attention. And I think like that encapsulates it, right? It's really those who live in cages deserves our attention. Come on now, come on. That is all. Every time I read the, the blurb by Jamil, I want to cry. <laughs> I legit want to cry. Like, yeah, no. Truly humble. <laughs> I mean, so before we start, mm, I told you, Terry and this book, eh? I was reading it at five o'clock in the morning before work because I was like, I need to know what happens next. I need to know what happens next. But before we even start, I just want to read a little bit of, uh, of the book. There's just a portion that I think sets the, the scene so well for what's going to happen. So I'm just going to read it from page five, and it's called Getting to Know Eldorado Park. Good afternoon and good morning. Let me introduce myself. I'm Mapella Berg all the way to Johnson Stop. I'm the main road and Union Road and Silver Streets and Buckingham Road. I'm near Eastern Strat and Jones Streets in Jewel Strat and Florida Avenue. I'm the fire station right up until the post office. I'm ShopRite and Dan and Pip and the closed discount. I'm something fishy and Nando's and Jivens in extension six. I'm the Centrum and Jamila Center and the spa in the nine and two. I'm the closed ABC 
and every shop owned by Mary Ann and her family. I'm a Shahid's mutton bunny and chips from spa. I'm two loaves of sliced bread, a poloni special, and an AK-47. I'm sugar from next door and an onion and loose tea bag. I'm the AGS church and the two Catholic churches. I'm the old apostolic church and the new. I'm the SDA church and the Masjid's and extension one. I'm the Pinkster church and the Myriad church is named after some weird parts of the Jesus story. I'm the Badur's on Wednesday and the churches in people's yards. I'm the Sal groups and the apostles and the prophets. I'm the blood in extension three and the park with the Marongrongs in O Park. I'm the felt behind ShopRite and felt in the school in seven. I'm the tennis courts and all the swimming pools. I'm Mason's and Kippy's and Lenny's Tavern. I'm an Ant Dot and every street corner that has ever seen teenagers kissing. I'm Aldridge and Bookenhood, Dickinson and Deep Blow School. I'm Bobster School in Missouri High, Aldermain and Cloud Park. I'm the children singing, other crest, football place and Cavendish, Bob and Fish. I'm the Scholar Patrol and Pro Artes Concerts. I'm the inter-primary and the inter-high. I'm the blue uniforms from Parkdale and the red ones from E.W. Hobbs. I'm the athletes from Clifton and the teachers from McBain Charles. I am Bertha, the 40-something-year-old grandmother of one who has just left her abusive husband. I'm Kaylin, the optimistic matriculant who lives in the shadows of innocence and on the brink of discovery. I'm Laverne, the young mother with nothing but hope and a Bible verse, unaware of the burden of knowledge. I'm Raquel, the one who cannot afford to lose what I've worked for, the drive and the ambition of a woman who has seen it all. I am Janice. My reputation coats the room with a stench of untruth. I am ev- I'm the ghost of every neglected teenage girl, haunting the dreams of church grandmothers. I'm the people and the people are me. I've seen people, children born and died too early. I've seen parents shot when the streetlights go on. I hear the sound of dice as it hits the pavements. I'm the smell of cobra polish and new paints after Christmas bonuses get paid in. These are the things that make me, me. So welcome and enjoy your time here as you walk down my dusty streets, play three blickies with my children, have a dagwood and listen to blue magic. Welcome to Eldorado Park. It's you, girl. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you wrote that. Do you, do you still have moments, Terry? And you're just like, I can't believe I wrote an entire book. Every damn day. My my mom has the book on her bedside table. So every time I pass her, I actually see it there because my mom's a very avid reader. And to see my book next to all of these other, the mixture of those Christian self-help books, Jody Co, and then my book. And I'm just like, what? It's unreal. My mom has read the book now for the third time. Oh I, I still can't believe it. Can, can we speak a little bit about the title? Because I, I was so intrigued by those who live in cages, right? And I mean, we'll delve a little bit further into the themes, but I really want us to just talk about the title as an introduction to, to the podcast and to the discussion around the podcast. So those who live in cages actually came to me before I even wrote the contents of the book. Like I knew the title before I knew what I was going to write because I knew that I was so obsessed with this idea of knowledge being a cage. I, I just finished my honors. Um, it's 2016. And 
I'm now burdened with this knowledge of knowing what ableism is, knowing what feminism is, racism. And before I went to university, I was so unwoke, you would have actually hated me. I was that person that was like, oh, everybody has the same 24 hours. And I leave Tux knowing that nobody has the same 24 hours. And it was this burden of knowledge mm. that became a page for me. And I thought, I want to write a book about that. So the title came before the content. Mm. I want to just jump in here. Janice says this and beautifully says it. She says, everyone lives in a cage. Whether they know it or not is the question. I think knowing that you live in a cage is what ultimately sets you free. But even if you do not know that you live in a cage, you know that there must be more to life than this. It's like those chickens that are in those cages in Town. I once asked my father if they know that they are in a cage. They looked crazy. The sounds they made were scary. Those weren't normal chickens. Those metal bars turned them into something else. Knowing that they were in a cage was not what was important. What was important is that they wanted out and those that didn't want freedom were adapting to survive. Religion is a big cage here in Alders. It holds people like me, my mother and Laverne hostage and they can't see outside what the Bible or the pastor says. Being a woman is also a cage. I know that cage very well. It stops you from having abortions or liking sex. It even stops you from running your own life sometimes. I've just discovered the cage of being colored. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how light your skin is, you're still not white. A lot of coloreds still have to discover this. My uncle knew this and that is why he died. And I think also connecting this to the broader theme that we uncovered in those who live in cages is not only the fact that, um, as you say rightly, that knowledge is, is, is a cage and knowing is a cage, but it's also the structural sort of um, inequalities and the structure, right, that is the cage. And I feel like in many ways, those who live in cages is a glimpse into those, that structure. Like uh, it allows us to think more deeply about religion, more deeply about womanhood, more deeply about like actual geographic location and how those things sort of keep you locked up in a cage. And I wanted you to speak more about that, right? Some of the themes that, that captured what Janice is saying about, because those are the themes that come up in the book. Yes. Um, so the cage of the patriarchy is such a, a important one and a, a one that I just wish could die now. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, when we intellectualize feminism and we, we, we are in these university rooms and on these Twitter conversations and we always speak about feminism, your Audrey Lords and your Bell Hookses, we never think of the Bertha that's a working class woman that is being crushed by the patriarchy and trying to find her own way hate it. And I wanted to be very deliberate about showing how something as intellectual as feminism translates in the context of a working class factory worker or the context of the daughter of a working class factory worker who is seen as jachs and as a rot. And what does feminism mean to a teenage girl who has absolutely no idea of how she's going to get her out of this geographical cage, which is Eldorado Park. Which leads me to the second point. You know, if you look at where Aldo's is in the geography of Johannesburg, Aldo's is on um, the southwest tip of, of Joburg. And when you leave Aldo's, you get Nansfield and then you get Walkerville. And it's actually not far from um, the Val. So it's right at the bottom there. 
And the history of Aldo's is very contentious because that area, Aldo's Club Sprite, um, Club Town, used to be um, a sewage site or a dumping site. It was actually like a disease area. And in the beginnings of the history of Joburg, they would dump black misfits or black miscreants on that Club Sprite area, which was not a sanitary place at all. And then that area from your club sprite up until Freedom Park now becomes a residential area and it's a sewage dump. You know, if you enter Aldo's, the first thing you smell, there's this overwhelming stench of shit because Kakadam is right there. <laughs> it's right there. So it's not as as the area itself, it's geographically a cage because it's far from everything you're about 20 to 30 minutes away from the city center depending if you're taking a taxi and if you're taking a taxi in on a monday morning you're an hour away from the city center um your closest mall is southgate the only people you see are colored and black people and it's not that Joburg that everybody else knows you know the Joburg we read about um, the dangerous hill brow. The, no, that's not Aldo's. Aldo's is right outside and it could not even be Joburg because it's so far removed from everything. And that's what made um, the place for me so important in the book and setting the scene for the place because the place itself is a cage and people just want to leave. Everybody just want to leave Aldo's. Um, and then you've got your your cage of of racial identity and identity as a colored person um in the new south africa what does that mean and i'm not talking about this nonsense rhetoric of oh not white enough for this and not black enough for this no what does it actually mean to be a colored person in johannesburg where you're not so connected to your ancestry as colored people in cape town are you're not so connected to your slave roots. You're not so connected to your indigenous roots. Um, but you're just here. And even that movement of wanting to um, colored people who want to do away with the term colored, that doesn't translate so well into Joburg because what are we going to call ourselves? I don't know the exact tribe that my grandparents come from that I can now reclaim. All I know is colored. And it would be disingenuous for me to call myself black, um, even though I am black as a colored person, but to just strip away the term colored and call myself black, because there is still a level of privilege that I hold as a colored person. So yeah, it's very tricky. And when all of those cages intersect, you get those urban cages. I think what you've said about the, the positioning in the locality is so interesting, right? Because in the conversation that Tlokan and I were having, we're having I don't want to say renewed conversations. We're having conversations around land, around what dignity is attached to land and what dignity is attached to the kind of structure that you get to call home and what a lack of dignity in the structure that you call home means for you and for your psyche, right? And I think that that's something that you demonstrated so well when you started to describe the different homes that people in Eldorado Park live like even in this community where we feel that we are the same 
we are not the same. There is a stratification, mm. right? So there are people who, for example, live in the, in the flats, right? And what does that mean? What does mm. it mean for you to grow up in a space that continuously deprives you of your dignity? What does that mean for your psyche to have to wake up every day and know that your home is considered a dumping site or a sewage site? And I think that there is a, there is a link there between the rights to dignity, right? That is espoused in your, in your living conditions and the effects that it has on your psyche that I think you demonstrate so well in the book as well, you know? And I, I want to know if that in itself was intentional, making that link, right? Because yes, we understand the positioning. So yes, we understand that there is a sewerage, that it doesn't smell great, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what does that mean for the psyche of the people who live there? And how is that demonstrated in the communal problems that they have? How is that demonstrated in, in their in really the ways in which you constrict people's ability to dream, right? Because how can you even imagine yourself out of this place that every day is an indignity? Yeah, it was very deliberate for me, hey, Alma, because I grew up in the four rooms in Alders, um, in the OPA, which is not one of the sexy extensions, like extension nine or the and seven. No, I, I grew up in the old park, in the forums, um, and the old park is sometimes considered dangerous because um, you've got your, your streets that were named after the precious jewels, so your Amitas, your Vial, Aquamarine, and those streets are, are, are rough, like it's rough there. But the houses in the old park were the four rooms and the two rooms, and you get them everywhere else in Elders as well. Um, but I always grew up with this knowledge that this is what was built for my grandparents during the apartheid era in the 60s. This is what they were told they were good enough for. They, they were only told that they were good enough for a four-roomed house with an outside toilet. And by the time I come around in the 90s, it's still there and it's still spread all across elders. And there was always this tension between us who grew up in the four rooms and the two rooms and people who lived in the bigger houses, the houses that were built big. And I went to school in the school in seven with the nice houses. And I was in class with these English colored kids who grew up in the nicer houses and um, had the bathrooms in their houses. And just where you live, the structure of your home played mm. such an important role in how people treated you. But also it played an important role in how you treated yourself. Mm. Um, we were inherently ashamed of the fact that we lived in a forum. Mm. Be, be damned what my grandfather did for us to get that forum in the first place. It's a very well-known story in my family that my grandfather walked from Westbury to Aldo's just so that we could get that house. That, that whole thing, when you are a teenager, when you are a child, that whole beautiful story of this man walking from Westbury, which is here in West Edenside, all the way to Aldous just to secure a home for his family. You don't think about that. You just think about the fact that you don't have a bathroom and you have to wash in a squattle um, and you have to go outside at night and, and, and go into the outside. You think of that. And it really affected the way we dreamed. Some of us were geared to become overachievers, to be like, I'm getting out of elders, I'm gonna do everything to get out of elders. And some of us, it was just like, well, this is it. This is all that we can amount to. 
and it had I saw the effect that living in those four rooms and those two rooms had on us at school and I wanted to bring it out in the book and you actually see that in those 11 cages nobody lives in the four rooms Kaylin just speaks about those areas and how she's not allowed to go there and how her dad calls people who love their scholies. Mm. But Kaylin and, and, and Janice and them, I don't specify the extension that they live in because people and elders would be able to literally point out, you know, um, but they live in a, in a nicer area. Kaylin lives in a, on a nice corner house that's actually really um, big and Janice mm. and them live in an house because their father had a nice little boiler making job. So those two families, um, the kids don't know that form in two room life. Um, so, but they know not to go there. They know that it's the dangerous areas. And um, also just speaking of, you know, those constructs, I think that there's, a, there's a, an interesting conversation that lies in our, the black and brown community's relationship with sex, right? So, and that's something that you explore. So you start the book very intentionally with Kaylin discussing how she believes that virginity is a social construct. Um, and Kaylin doesn't necessarily have the fancy English to say this is a social construct that mm. is created by patriarchy to make men feel better about their penises. But Kaylin is already beginning to question the validity of, of virginity, right? Um, but that also leads to a bigger question or bigger conversation around sex, right? And, and the ways in which sex is used as a tool to shame women in our communities, right? And this like weird relationship that South Africa has with sex where we believe that we're a conservative country, but we're actually not. So we want to believe that we're conservative, né? but we're actually not. We start to think about it. And, and I, I'm really interested about why you wrote sex in the way that you did, in the lens that you used, and what you were hoping to achieve with that. I think sex education in this in this country specifically is lacking and what it leads to is high rates of teenage pregnancy um and oftentimes the fathers are predators and it is one of those things that colored girls are known for um notorious for and it's not a, a good thing um whenever i remember someone had a rant one of the, the, color, um, the celebrities here in South Africa had a rant about colored women. And that rant stuck with me throughout. Um, a rant about how we're just smokers and our daughters are just pregnant. And, you know, they went off. And I think they apologized. I, I, I don't know <laughs> if they apologized or they didn't apologize. But that, that rant, and then there was another rant um, in a Zimbabwean newspaper about um, Zimbabwean coloreds and this woman was saying why her son will never marry a Zimbabwean colored woman. And it was mm. sort of the same rant about how we're just smokers and our daughters are just pregnant and blah, blah, blah. And I wanted to write about sex very deliberately because of that stigma of teenage pregnancy within the colored community, but also teenage pregnancy within black and brown communities. And what leads you there. Um, and I spoke a lot to my mom who was a teenage mother um, mm. with me. And I spoke about what was the circumstances and, and you know, we, we had a chat about it. And it all boiled down to the same things that I went through as a teenager. Lack mm. of sex education, the lack of 
understanding virginity as a construct, the lack of um, being told it's okay to condomize, being told um, you can go to the clinic to access birth control. And I remember I was 21 or 22 and I was in Aldo's and I needed to go and get my birth control and I, I couldn't run to Pretoria to go get it. And I went to the local clinic and the way I was being looked at and I was the only one there to get birth control. And there was a line of these young girls who were there to get their antenatal care. And just the way that the nurses treated both ends of the spectrum, the girls getting their antenatal care and me, a 22-year-old girl, coming to get a birth control. And it was just that horrible way that the, the adults and grown-ups in South African um, black and brown adults at large think about sex and how it then translates, you know, because the kids are not stopping. But if, if we had the proper support, if we had the proper education, the proper resources, if the clinic wasn't such a war zone, what, what would happen to girls, especially at, at that age between 13 and 18? Mm. I feel you. Oof. I wanted to, you know, um, just button here and think about pathologizing, right? So I, 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 I don't like the framing of um, teen pregnancy. And I know this is the, the, the prevalent discussions of how people know it. But, you know, to think about calling it young moms, right? Because it, it feels mm. like when we say teen pregnancy, we also are continuing in pathologizing. These people who, as you say, in those who live in cages, is a structural problem, right? There is a, yes. a lack of education. And because of this lack of education, you find people in these things. And I know this has been like uh, prevalent discussions around, um, you know, how we position uh, young mothers and how we want to do preventative. So we pathologize. But in us, you know, reflecting on it, we should really be cautious about if we are participating in further pathologizing. But I also wanted to speak about this, Terry. I felt when I, and, and you know how I felt about your book, because every moment I was messaging you to be like, oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> but I wanted to speak about this idea of writing about a people, writing to a people and writing for a people, right? Because I feel like that is what those who live in cages does is that you are, are, are writing about colored people and people particularly in Aldo's, right? And you're writing to them because you're deliberate in what you're writing and, and then you're writing for them, right, as, as, as an authorship. So I want to speak about that idea, right, about like the deliberate nature of, of, of how you wrote the book because the about four and two seem to inform a lot of what went into the book, how it went into the book. And I just wanted you to speak about that, just the idea of not being voyeuristic and instead inviting people in to sit in, you know, welcome to our Rada Park, as you say in the, in the, in the prologue that Alma read. Yeah, no, hey, the Holy Trinity, the about four and two. Um, <laughs> With, with those living cages, that became so organic for me now because when I was writing, um, it's funny, I was actually speaking to about, uh, about this to the husband yesterday and I was telling him that sometimes I feel like I'm possessed by a character. So when I sit, and that's why I like first person narration so much. So I'll be sitting and then a character will just start speaking in my head and I'll sit and I'll start writing. And that's literally how those living cages came to me. And I wanted to be as authentic 
and as true to these characters that I, that I was representing and these characters as people that the about to and for came through that. So when I'm writing someone like Janice, which is, Janice is a very well-rounded, nuanced person that, as you said now so eloquently, often gets pathologized, ooh, English, um, <laughs> by society. And, and often we, we get your Janice's as statistics and little footnotes and reports and, you know, think pieces. And I wanted to have that character of this well-rounded girl speak through me so that I, I, I tried very hard not to make her that two-dimensional statistic. And Janice's character for me was the most difficult to write because of that um, pathologizing and because of I wanted to be so careful as to not become part of the problem um, of how we speak about young mothers and how we speak about how um, teenage, teenage sex and sexual liberation for a teenager and you know all of that so yeah for me it was just trying to be to stay as true to these characters being whole people that um, that writing about them and for them and to them became natural for me. I, I love that you're talking about being whole people right because I think that when I look at the relationship between Janice and Kaylin, I think about the concepts of how, you know, your friends in many ways can be a much better support system than your family. So in this like very white supremacist structure of thinking even just about the nuclear family, there's this almost a reduction of, of families which don't fit those kinds of molds, right? So, um, molds where you don't have the nuclear mother, father, 2.4 children, and the two puppies, right? There's almost a dismissal of the validity of those kinds of relationships. And then I think of the relationship between Janice and Kaylin and how in many ways they are much closer to being family than what their own relationships with their kin is, right? Um, and I think that that friendship was so beautiful because I also often think of the relationships between women and the ways in which friendships between women are painted. Um, and I wanted us to talk a little bit about why that relationship was so important for you to write in the way that you did and why you spent so much time focusing on the relationships between women in this book and the friendships in this book, right? Um, I think that friendship is just an overarching theme in this book because we see Laverne and Rita, uh, we see Bertha and and her friend Hattie, and there's just all of this this female friendship that 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 runs through the book. And I'm really interested in relationships between women as as a center point. Um, relationship was so important for me because women and very especially black and colored women saved my life. You know, it was my friendships with black and colored women that molded who I am today, that was the support system for, for the person that I could become today. And I wanted to show the, how friendships with, among black and colored women are transformative. Like how a friendship can change your entire worldview, how a friendship can move you and shape you, and especially a friendship outside of your family. Because I feel oftentimes there's this pressure to perform mm. for your family. 
And especially in a black and brown family, you're always performing, especially if you're the young, younger person, because you have to stay within that role of the dutiful daughter, the submissive wife, the, you know, and it is when you get to your friends that you can just be. Because if we look at Bertha's character, for example, um, Bertha cannot say all of the things she says to Heta to her mother-in-law in the face. She cannot say, in that she was very quiet throughout that family meeting. She did not say anything in that family meeting. It is after the family meeting that she finds her voice in Heta, where she can now speak about how she felt, how her mother-in-law just, how Oma Hex just like put her down, how Oma Hex doesn't even see her. And she can't say these things in front of Oma Hex because she's a Christian wife. She yeah. is a daughter-in-law. She has a role to play. She, you know, she can't get up in the family meeting and be like, fuck you, fuck die, fuck your ama. You know, she has to say who she is. And it is only in Heta where she finds that freedom. And I wanted to show how friendships is where we as women find our freedom. Yeah. I need, I need to tweet that. I need to tweet that, Terry. Let me just write it down. Um, so, um, Terry, I, I, I want to connect what Alma has just asked to you because I, I feel what you did in Dozy Live in Cages is twofold, particularly pertaining to the, the women that tell the story, right? And the women who we meet in Al Rada Park. You, one, rewrite these women into her story, right? So you, often the narrative about places like Aldo's or often histories, places, thinking, uh, radical imagination is in the domain of men, right? And particularly mm. cisgender, heterosexual men, right? But you, you push away from this because you're like, no, 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 I'm going to tell the story and these are the women who are going to tell the story. That's on the one hand. And then the second thing that you do, so it's like this idea of misbehaving. You're sort of doing feminist uh, leaning by misbehaving and saying, you know what, the men don't matter because the woman is where the issue is at, right? But then also, as you say, in, in many instances, although the friendship elements gives a Bertha, a maybe a, a Raquel and a, and, a, and a Janice a voice and an agency to you know, tell their story to their friends. You also give these women a voice, right? And you give these women a voice because often abuse, religion, structure, and all those things has taken a voice away from them. But you're like, I, hold up. We are not going to hear the man side of the story. We're not going to hear the church side of the story. We're not going to hear the parents side of the story. We are going to hear the words in the people's own words, right? I think particularly about Bertha, because Bertha, Bertha, man, yes, see, Bertha, my girl, my favorite girl, my favorite girl. Because Bertha, in many instances, and Alma and I spoke about this, right? Bertha allows us to do two things. On the one hand, we see a woman like Bertha who, in your imagination, could be an imagination and a rethinking. Bertha is in maybe her 40s and Bertha is like, you know what, scrap this, I'm leaving, I don't want to be in this marriage anymore, which a lot of women in Bertha's socioeconomic status as a working class woman are not able to do that because the husband is the head of the household. But also, we imagine Bertha 
as actually Bertha doing what Bertha can do. Because black women are often always, as Amal eloquently put it, the perpetual mother, right? Mm-hmm. Bertha must raise her children. Bertha must raise her grandchildren. Bertha must raise her great-grandchildren. Bertha must raise the community. Bertha never has space for herself to just be a black woman. And in many ways, you, Bertha is like, fuck yalla. I'm living my life now. Keegan, like, you know, those type of things. So I wanted to speak about that, like this idea of misbehaving by writing these women, but also the idea of giving these women power. I, you know, when I, I, I um, wrote Bertha, so Bertha is this mix of a lot of aunties. It's my auntie, her friends, my gran, the aunties on the bus, just the you, you, there's something people don't understand there. Colored aunties, especially colored Africans aunties, are hilarious. <laughs> they have these sehute men, they've got the sehute that they say. And you know, when I was writing Bertha, I wanted to do all of these women justice because a lot of these women don't have a happy ending. And yes, Bertha's ending is not happy, it's complicated. And a lot of these women, I remember I, I, I had a, um, heard a story when I was a child, something that really, really stuck with me. There was this auntie, um, I won't name her shame, and she had a husband, and her husband would beat her all the time. And she worked in a factory, and he'd beat her, and we'd know, okay, he's going to beat her. And then one day, she didn't have an eye. And I was, I think, six or seven. And I, I, I obviously, it was not my place because already I'm sitting in the lounge. And like, I'm not supposed to be in the lounge. It's not my business to be hearing about this poor woman. Um, so I can't speak to my grand afterwards. You know, and my grandfather's not in the room. And um, it's just the women. And they're sitting and they're talking about this poor auntie. And this auntie now doesn't have an eye. And... Her husband took out her eye, by the way. Three, four months later, my gran and my aunt are going to this auntie's funeral. And this auntie's story haunted me for the rest of my days. Because I was just like, how was it normal that the women could sit in the lounge and speak about this woman not having an eye? And nobody could go to the police station and nobody could go see her. Nobody could say, come live by my house. Nobody, and I could not judge my, as I grew older, obviously I realized that it is very unfair for me and for society to judge the women sitting in the lounge speaking about this auntie. Because by just speaking about her, they're doing this radical act of memorializing her story because now I, years later can speak about her again and mm-hmm. her legacy and her story and who she is now was was cemented that day in that lounge when they spoke about her and they spoke about her story because sometimes we don't realize that we can judge people in the hood and we can judge people oh in the hood what am i american we can, we can judge people, you know, speaking about this and, oh, they're doing nothing. And especially women, you know, but just memorializing and the retelling of these stories is 
then putting these, these, these narratives into the air so that one day structural change could happen, so that these stories could live on, so that this Anki is in my imagination forever. And I wanted to do something like that with those in living cages where not only am I writing an alternative narrative, because we all know Bertha's story could have gone horribly wrong. Um, it could have gone worse with, with not just Freddie pulling away his money, but you know, he could have come back and done horrible things. Mm. But I, I wanted to write Bertha's story into the world to, for everyone, not just for Bertha, but for every woman, and I know many working class women who have been in domestic violence situations, who have tried to get out, who have gotten out successfully um, after all the spas, who have not gotten out successfully, like the auntie that I just spoke about, and all the girls who are, in, who are young, 18, 19, in these domestic violence situations, who are in the beginning, of, of, of that journey. And I wanted to, as you said, misbehave by writing it and writing it as it is mm. and not glamour, like glamifying domestic. I hate people who turn domestic violence into trauma porn because domestic violence is not cute. It's not entertainment. It affects a lot of people's lives. People die. People get scarred. So I wanted to try as much as I, as I could to not make it glamour porn, not to make it trauma porn, but to show it as it is and also show how it affects these women. And then um, on a lighter note, I wanted to misbehave by showing Bertha as the comic relief. So she's the character that's going through the most, but she's also the character that makes you laugh the most. Yeah. Because if we think about how we as black and brown people use humor to just get through sometimes, um, I remember when Corona just hit South Africa and Black Twitter was like, yes, coronavirus means. <laughs> and it's just the way, and it's the soul and the heart of Eldorado Park sometimes for me, is that we can just talk nonsense, man. We can talk nonsense and laugh about things that are really, really bad. And they're so bad and we can do nothing about it. But so we use humor to get that agency to maybe get a little bit of control over it. Um, something like drug addiction. I remember sitting in a taxi and hearing an auntie go, Yerma, hala steal Alice. And that's where I got that line, sorry for the book. Like, hala steal Alice, hala steal Tori, tana it's in the way I love. And it's such, a, it's such a serious, sad thing. But you know, how else are you going to get agency over this thing that you have absolutely no agency over other than humor? So, yeah. So, may I ask you to just introduce us to Bertha? So, if you could read the first paragraph of um, page 12, just so that people have like a, an, an introduction to Bertha. Oh, Bertha's my favorite. Oh, this, this paragraph, sorry. Um, okay. Weet jy heta, die dem fabrieke betaal mens net kak man, ons die hele jaar ons gatte afgewerk om vir hulle geld te maak, Maar hulle kan ons eers recht betaal nie. Ek sê jou, dis nou January en Janus doen matriek die jaar en ek het pokkel oor van die bonus geld. Moet ons vraag van die holiday pay nie. Die ble die boere het ons nie ons holiday pay betaal nie. Julle is fucking lucky, julle het bonus, lief pay en holiday pay gekryk. So, yeah, that's, that's Bertha. 
Britney is my favorite. Fave, <laughs> right? Um, and it's it's so it's interesting that everybody exercises agency in one way or another in this book, right? Um, be it Raquel leaving her home, yes, she goes back, but that's another discussion. But um, yeah, Janice or Janice having Janice having a termination um, of pregnancy, or you know, you look at um, Kaylin just deciding that she's going to study design, and her parents must just deal like it is. But I also think with Kaylin, it's also the sex, the sex, the yeah, sex. Oh, the sex and, and the ability to choose, right, and to make decisions and to say, it's actually not contingent on what you think of me, right? And I think that's really important that she's just like, mm, you know what, this, this isn't working for me, moving on next, right? Um, but I also wanted to talk a little bit about the men in this book because the Tlokonola and I had a conversation earlier and I said to him that I don't believe that there are any good men in this book. And I don't believe that Kaylin's father is a good person because how do you, I think that men, we need to start believing that complicity, right? That even in your silence, you're complicit in your inaction, you're complicit. And therefore being good to your immediate family does not make you a good person. It's how men can get away with being problematic, right? Because people will say, Oh, but he's a good father. Yes. Are you, but are you a good person if you're a good father but a horrible husband to your partner, right? Or you keep quiet and you, I mean, he's a policeman, so he's got the means to do something about it. But he continuously watches Freddie abusing Bertha and there's the sense of, hi, I read again. I'm just not going to get involved. This is just not my business, right? And I, and I don't know that you can be a good person and have access and means and watch every single day somebody being abused and just decide to divorce yourself from that reality because it's inconvenient to you. And I, f- I found them to be complex, right? It's like, I found that man to just be very, very complex. I mean, the top of you know, and I were talking, we were saying, is he a good person? I really do not believe that he is. Like, I don't believe that he's a good person. And I think that there's so much, Space, there's something to be said about the ways in which men also divorce themselves from the going-ons of their home, right? So you can really believe that you just come here to set the rules, but there is no obligation on you to do certain things. So you don't have to educate your children about sex. You don't have to know how your children are doing at school. You don't need to be involved in their day-to-day living because you are the father, you set the rules, and therefore you can divorce yourself from it afterwards. Oh, yeah. Um, look, I'm going to ask you, what do you think about Ati? And then I'll reveal Ati. He trash. Okay, he trash. So, I, I think, and, and this is what I was saying to Alma, right? I think, for me, there's a complexity, right? And I definitely agree that the complicity is trashy. Trashy, trashy, trashy. Because we even see the complicity with Freddie Samada, who essentially knows what's happening in the household and just like gives them money, money, blastel, blastel, easy help. So, you know, like just complicity as a whole thing. And thinking about like, that man also had trouble in his own home there, you know? <laughs> and the troubles in his own home there was just like, babes, deal with your shit first before you deal with Anamensisahut, you know? But I, I, I do believe that, like, as Alma says, he should have done something. He could have done something. 
But we also know that police people in our communities ain't shit because he could have been the man who easily took his gun and shot his wife because we know those stories. Mm-hmm. But also that men are always the ones who must be complex, right? Like men are always the ones who must have like complexity endowed upon them because they just want to live their lives in ways that are just fucky, right? Like just live your life properly. Then you won't always have to be endowed with complexity. And he had many layers. And as you grew, he, no, just stop being fucky. <laughs> You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Complexity is always in doubt to men. You hardly hear a woman being described as complex. Do you know why? Because to say men are or a femme fatale or I don't know, you know. Well, you know what? With Ati, Ati was, for me, Ati was also a very difficult character because um, I know a lot of middle class colored dads that get seen as really good dads. And you know them, they wear golf shirts, they play with their boys, they take their boys fishing. And you know, because you've got the other end in the colored community, mm-hmm. the bar is in the ground. So the other end is dads like my dad, who never even showed up, who never, you know, who <laughs> never So you've got that. You've got the Siapkwap dad, you've got Freddie, who's just the abusive drinker mm-hmm. dad. Then you've got Ati, who seems like a unicorn among these different, you know, dad figures, especially father figures. Ati Mm -hmm. takes Dean fishing, he pays for Model C education, he, you know, he doesn't talk to Phyllis. Why does he need to talk to Phyllis? Is is Phyllis fed? (laughs) You know, Phyllis is fed. So Ati seems like a unicorn. And also he's got this tragic backstory, which shame, it was very tragic. But he is not moving past any of that because there's no need for him. He's not being held accountable. He's not holding himself accountable. Phyllis feels like, well, there's food in the fridge. She's not holding him accountable. Nobody is, is, is holding Ati accountable to be a better father. And Ati is also a misogynist at heart because he, he doesn't care about Caleb. <laughs> he doesn't care. He, he's worried about Dean. Caleb... Dean can go wherever. Kalen can't go wherever. Dean can go to the four-room section. Kalen is not allowed there. So he is actually not as complicated as people want, would, would want to make a man like that out to be. He is someone who the community is not holding accountable. So he's just resting on his laurels. And he's not even holding himself accountable because he feels like the bare minimum that he's doing, he's being praised for. People would go to a guy like Ati and be like, hey, look, he goes to church. He's a good father. Is a, you know, so sometimes us as community as well needs to be like, but is that enough? Is that enough though, Arthur? Like, drag, <laughs> drag them, drag them. I wanted to um, speak a little bit about the place of religion. You know, Janice rightly says, Religion is a case in all those, right? But I think religion is a case in a number of people's lives. You think about uh, everyone who is outraged at Janice terminating her pregnancy. They are outraged. And Alessia, you know, Raquel says, how dare you, you know, um, Laverne is like, how dare you do this to me? You know me. Uh, Bertha is like, you know, like there's just a lot, right? 
Right? Uh, it, child who's a thief who steals the teaspoon, not that one. You're not talking about that, that crime, no. <laughs> but religion is also a stronghold in people living the full spectrum of their identities, right? Mm. And I'm thinking here particularly about Levin. Levin is a kek for you. Um, and also, Levin is also on the path to redemption because Levin was a teen mom and she was ostracized from the community. And because Laverne is trying to piece back together, Laverne is a de- devoted Christian, and Laverne is seeing Daryl, who is a, a devoted Christian. But Laverne, Laverne has a little bit of a, a inclination, you know, an inclination. You know, she, she, she is like, she sees Rita not in a, only a friendship capacity, you know, certainly sees Rita in like a exuk for you. And, but Laverne is held back because of religion, right? And I love how masterful you did that because I think a close reading of their interaction reveals the queer undercurrent mm-hmm. in the story. But on the surface, it's not there. But eventually you're like, oh, hold up. Here is... So this is how you talk about Daryl. Yeah. So this is how you talk about me. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to... I want to speak about that, right, about how religion in, in, in many instances, and as you explore in the book, does not allow people the full spectrum. On the one hand, it's used to ostracize Janus. On the other one, it's used to condemn, condemn self-condemnation of wanting to participate in, in a queer coupling. Mm, and I mean, just before you, okay. you answer, and just to add to, to the government's question, is also, I guess, the, the resentments that this hyper-religiosity also breeds, right? Because a, a, lot of, a lot of the resentment that you see in the book stems from the fact that people feel that their choices were informed by their religious beliefs. So Laverne will say that, um, you know, yes, it was a mistake. Um, she wasn't excited to become Kyle's mother. And there's always a little bit of distance in the way that she mothers him. But... But she's, she stuck through it, right? Because she didn't want to be a murderer. Those were her beliefs. But there's definitely a relationship between that hyper-religiosity and so much of the resentment that the women feel in this book towards Janice for having made the choice to terminate her pregnancy. And it, see, it seems that those two things go hand in hand, that, that resentment, that feeling stifled of your life choices and that hyper-religiosity that the Tokunolo was speaking about. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with your question, and then I'm gonna go to to to, to the the other part of of So Laverne and Laverne and Raquel especially mm. um, are angry at Janice for doing the thing they wish they could have done. Mm. Um, not so much Raquel, but Laverne. You can tell that by the way she's reacting to Janice, but also the way she she speaks about her child as a consequence, as a punishment. As you know, she speaks almost about him like a little nuisance. And as much as she expresses this, the surface level guilt for not being able to parent him directly and be there, you can almost tell that she feels a little bit of a freedom, you know, that she doesn't have to be Kyle's everyday mother. Um, and she's more angry that Barrett, her, her, her baby daddy, is going to parent her child with another woman more than she's angry about Barrett taking her child, you know? So she holds deep, deep resentment for Janice actually going out and doing what she wanted to do, but was held back by the extra shame. 
So there's the shame of falling pregnant and then the shame of then having the termination. And in turn, it, it, it then makes her hate Janice and hate herself even more. And now she's stuck in this new cage that she's built in her, for herself of regret, the regret that she didn't do this. And oftentimes, religion is the reason that we end up doing such things. Um, religion is the reason that we end up hating people who just live their lives freely and who are like, fuck religion. But because you're so stuck and you don't want to leave the comfort, because I think religion also gives a lot of people comfort. Um, that you're part of a group. It's not nice being on the outside. It's not nice being Janice. Janice wasn't having a party, you know, going through what she went through and making the choice of the termination. But these same people that are making her life a living hell are the same people that want that freedom for themselves. And it's actually not an excuse for people to be judgy, to be... Um, resentful towards people. If you want freedom, take your freedom. Don't come be a cuck person with cuck gedachtes and treat other people's lives, treat other people shitty. Um, so yeah, religion just, and I, I think it's not even the religion itself. It's the way people weaponize religion. You use religion as a weapon. You put it in a gun and you shoot at people. Um, that makes people become such horrible human beings towards other people who are just making the choice to live their lives. Um, yeah. And then Janice and, sorry, not Janice, Laverne, who just doesn't want to dabble in the rain. You know, that's another thing she's doing. She's holding herself back because she doesn't want to leave this club that she's in, this very popular club, because we all know um, among Christians, Christians are seen as the elite. You can be a Christian and pray loudly in a bus. And when I want to say to you, I'm sorry, sir, but you're making a noise, everybody goes, but he's praying to the Lord. You know, so there's this, there's this thing about being Christian that always exempts you from stuff. Um, you can be Christian and play your gospel music loudly in a store. And when someone stops you, they'll be like, but I'm, I'm praising the Lord. So you don't want to leave that club to go and live your life. Now you're using this religion to bolt the door in front of you, and it just breeds horrible resentment. But I want to say, at the end, in the, in the epilogue, Laverne moves out of Aldo's, and she goes and she lives with Rita in another place. So who knows what happens when she actually becomes Rita's roommate. Mm, Are we going to get that story, Terry? No, you must decide, you know, is Rita going to convince? Because Rita's been very educational. You know, is she going to educate her? Okay, even more? Yeah. I mean, okay, okay, we're ready. Yeah. I guess, um, you know, we'll just, just in closing, I just have another question, and I guess it's the theme of anti-blackness. And there's a, it's a topic that runs throughout the book, you know. So there's a reference to these beauty standards, which in their nature are just anti-black, right? So the crews, the people with the crews are, kind of someone on Twitter once said, black women have crucies. We're so proud of our crucies. What do they say? Shine, shine met your crucies. Shine met your crucies. Shine met your crucies. Shine met your crucies. 
But um, there's a there's a there's a theme there. So you know, when you do the contrast between the two boys that Kaylin and Janice are interested in, and the one that seems to have the green eyes, and you know, he's much closer to whiteness and to that mm. anti-black standard of beauty. But then there's also the the, the comparison, I guess, between Sanjay's family, right? So Sanjay's family is established; they're educated, but they're black. And the fact that they are all of those things makes it easier for them to stomach the fact that their daughter has now married this black man, you know? And so there's a conversation around anti-blackness that is subtly playing out in the background. So you close on a close reading, you see that that theme of anti-blackness and that questioning, right, about who is prettier. So, I mean, even the comments that Kaylin makes about how some kind of people seem to realize that they're not white and she's waiting for them to sort of have that revelation right there's a subtle thread there and i want to know why why you wrote it in the way that you wrote it but why you felt that that theme was so important for you to to include right in in the context that you did for this for this book yeah no anti-blackness it was very heavy important for me to bring in anti-blackness and i guess that's why i brought in sandile as an outside character because and even Vita, I brought them as outside characters because I, I myself didn't even want to write a, a, a first person black lest I do, do not do them any justice. Mm. Um, I grew up in a very anti-black community. And anybody that wants to lift up their hands and say Aldo's is not anti-black is suffering and feet of denial that they must just get up from because... <laughs> Woo, it is, I mean, it isn't part of days. So in my, in my granddad's extended family, he's got a cousin, um, two, and the one was white passing. They even used to call her die Frau. That's how white passing she was. And her sister um, had a black dad, and she was completely, I to this day cannot because I don't know, colored is also not even a phenotype. Like, let's be honest. What is the phenotype that we call colored? So now you have my, 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 my great aunt and she is black passing, um, walk down the street. You'd say Saubona Sisi, but her direct sister is white passing. That you'd say more And Obviously in apartheid where these two women grew up, there is that tension between the two of them, that push and pull. And I saw the, the, the effects of anti-blackness very deeply within my own family because my grandfather has a colored mom, had a colored mom, sorry, and then had a Tswana dad. And my grandfather in all checks and boxes was a black man who grew up in a colored society. And he was a black man, he spoke I think five or six um, African vernacular languages on top of Afrikaans. He went and, and, and did, um, a, he was in Malawi for a couple of years and he embraced his blackness. He never ran away from being black. But in the community, they would ignore that. They would ignore that Omansi is a black man who, when black people came to our house, he'd speak to them in, in, in whatever language they spoke in. His daughters, my mom included, married black men. And there were members of my immediate and extended families who were not okay with this idea of my grandfather's daughters 
marry, um, marrying or coupling and having kids with black men. And then in my own family, in my own little immediate family, you've got me who's got a colored dad and my sister who's got a black dad. And that sort of interplay. So I've seen anti-blackness run through my community like a disease. And I wanted to bring it out because I do feel that colored people have a sense of denialism when it comes to anti-blackness because we, we know that in some ways we are oppressed um, by the same white supremacist structure that oppresses black people. So we feel that because we're oppressed, because we've got high incarceration rates, high unemployment rates, fucky communities to live in, we feel that it's okay to be anti-black, that nobody can call us out for that shit because hey, we too are oppressed. Especially in a place, because Aldous is very different to John, for example. In Joburg, we've got such high proximity to blackness because Aldo's is right next to Soweto. Actually, Aldo's is in Soweto. So we've got this movement, our language, we exchange language, we sit in the same, but there was never a time where I was not exposed to blackness. The music we listened to was quite, I grew up on Kwaito, I grew up on house music, I grew up on Yuma Sikela because it's in Aldo's, we consume black culture, but then there's still this horrible thread of anti-blackness. It was always puzzling to me. And I thought, you know what, I'm not gonna keep quiet about this shit because I've got a son that is black. I've got a black husband. And even, I don't even wanna go into when I got a black husband. <laughs> he was palatable because of his private school accent in the community. It's that, yeah. that Sandile complex that I, I brought a black man home who had a private school accent, good education, comes from a good family, so people could accept it. Hmm. Um, yeah, I can, I can, I can unhand the whole thing. I mean, <laughs> I want to, I will just say this, Terry. I will address you separately at a later point about the ending. Alma and I will both address you about the ending because also. It's not fine, but we will, we will address you later on. Not okay. I'm going to jag you privately in the DMs. Man, just privately you, me, and Letlokonol. But I wanted to say this. Kellen says, the schools don't teach colored history. Let's be honest. The schools don't teach these things. They don't tell us anything. It's not just the forced removal. They need to tell us about slavery and the dope system. They need mm -hmm. to tell us about Ashley Creel, Chris Van Vegg, Sophie De Bruyne. Not everyone has a father who knows these things. And I want to talk a little bit about that in closing, just the honoring and, and, and a hat to, because you do this like in the narrative, but you also do it overtly when you uh, want to honor Ashley, want to honor Sophie and want to honor Chris. Why was it important for you to lift up these voices? It's very important for us as colored people to know, especially colored people in Johannesburg, I'll say this again, to know our history so that we can start seeing the thread of, of where we're being held um, hostage by white supremacy and by the white cis heteropatriarchal society. Um, I think this floating in the air and not knowing Ashley Creel and not knowing Chris Van Weyck and not knowing Sophie De Bruyne, whose son is a doctor in Aldo's, you know, not knowing these things and it's not even about pride because I am the last person to believe in nationalism. But I do believe that if you know that people who look like you, 
were involved in the anti-apartheid struggle, you would know that apartheid affected you too, sir, <laughs> and that it is still um, holding you hostage. And having these petty fights between colored people and black people, instead of coming together and realizing as colored people, they, but we too are in the shits. Um, it's, it's, it's a tool of white supremacy that is always going to keep us back, that is always going to keep our children not going to university, not being employed by good employers, not um, getting out of that school to prison. Do we have a school to prison pipeline in South Africa? But yeah, I feel that, you know, a school to prison pipeline. We do, we do. Um, yeah, like we're, we're just, I'm, I'm watching colored boys deteriorate, going from this to dropping out of school to doing this. This lack of education, and not education coming from a, a condescending manner, I hate this thing of coming and speaking down to people, but actually letting people know their history in, in, a, in a very um, accessible manner, letting people know that they are capable of doing things, they can um, be lawyers, they can go and work for Google, and that type of knowledge could be the first step in the dismantling of this horrible hold cage that we are in as colored people. Terry, this has been a fantastic conversation. We obviously want to do so much more, um, but you know, we don't want to give everything away. We want people to also, you know, enter those who live in cages and form their own opinions. So thank you once again for embracing the Cheeky Natives podcast with your wonderful um, voice, but also uh, for embracing the South African literary imagination with those who live in cages. Um, from the Cheeky Natives, this is a book that deserves our attention. Yes, yes. Thank, Thank you, so you so much, guys. I was on the Cheeky Natives podcast. Okay, thank you, thank you. <laughs> okay, until next time, Cheeky Natives, uh, you oh, know, yeah. comment, like our podcast, uh, and just share widely. Thank you very much, Cheeky Natives. And by the book, please don't be that person that asks for the PDFs, yeah? we're stopping that in 2020. Thank you. And you can buy it uh, from the Cheeky Natives. The Cheeky Merchant has signed copies. Um, so you yeah. can definitely get it there. <laughs>